0: The subject for the evening talk is the weight of knowledge. (coughs) Probably a number of us have been in the course of our life through a number of years of education. And we have been told in our education that we need to accumulate as much knowledge and information as possible and that this knowledge and information will serve us usefully, profitably in the future times. And so we have probably learned uh, several different subjects and then we have gone on to learn perhaps and specialize in perhaps one or two subjects and we've spent not just a few hours but thousands, tens of thousands of hours in the accumulation of knowledge in order that we are clever, that we become clever people. And we sometimes look back over the years that we've spent, accumulated all of this knowledge and we ask ourselves, well, how much of this knowledge and information which I accumulated, really is useful? And it was not only the accumulation of knowledge, but it was also the accumulation of pressure and stress and tension, and fear, often about not having enough knowledge about not passing the examinations, about not being qualified So this emphasis on knowledge also carries with it a strong emotional involvement Or Sometimes we've accumulated so much knowledge that we've become like a brain of knowledge are quite alienated from our emotions and our feelings and we've become technocrats of information, a kind of sitting, walking dictionary, who every time we speak, out of us comes some information which we've memorized and we've learned to repeat it like parrots. And this is this world of knowledge, and there is so much emphasis on accumulating n- knowledge on, as I say in America, so many people want to go back to school. And then sometimes the knowledge which we accumulate is useful. There's a the knowledge, there's information, say with regard to learning a language, there's a skill in that, and I must apologise, and it's fairly typical of English, who are frequently far too lazy to learn another language and I know for myself, I think I know four words in Italian and I've been here four or five times so each time I come I learn a new word and it's going slowly as you can see. <laughs> so, so far the four words that I've learned are um, Ciao and Arrivederci um, and pasta and amore. I think these four words are probably enough for living. <laughs> Perhaps nothing else really matters. <laughs> so we, we experience and we live in this world in which knowledge and information is very useful, but from a, a should we call it, a Dharma standpoint, a, a spiritual standpoint, a life of awareness, there is. Useful knowledge, there is skillful knowledge. And uh, today um, I was re- rather remind, reminded of this because uh, a friend of some of you uh, here um, named uh, Joanna, who works for Le-, Le Expresso, which is, as you know better than me. Um, a, uh, the major uh, weekly magazine of uh, Italy. And she um, came up today to, to interview me and to ask about the work that I do, spiritual work, meditation work, and the relationship of the work to um, green p- political and peace awareness. So we spent some, an hour or two together ex- exploring this. And she also brought up with me, brought up with her to show me um, a copy of the L'Expresso um, uh, um, ma- magazine. And I looked at the, the magazine, which is fairly typical of uh, many other magazines, Time, Newsweek, the Spiegel, and other magazines. And I saw that in this magazine, there were 250 pages. That's this magazine cool. comes out once a week. 250 pages, telling people what they ought to buy and telling people what they think they ought to know. And I I can't read Italian so I don't have any problem either way. (laughs) (laughs) But in this constant outpouring of um, information it seems sometimes when one reads the magazines and, and the newspapers and so so forth, and the impact that it has upon us, one is left to well, what's what's the point of it? And it's, it's as though it's like the weekly story of suffering. <laughs> and different names are used each week, and sometimes the same name is used week after week after week. And this is the magazines and this is a newspaper, and yet there's just enough difference for us to want to read a 250-page magazine. And then we see too, and I think this is all very much related to uh, knowledge and spiritual life and the work here, is that we sometimes speak, just another point here, speak of freedom of the press. And in fact, and as, as a former journalist, I n- rather know this rather well, in fact, there is very little real freedom of the press because the market, the consumer market of which the media is so uh, much connected to, is very much that the information keeps setting up role models, the political, the business, the uh, sports, the entertainment, and that becomes the world. And people think, this is the real world, this is life. There's no other life outside of this world. And so these models are created and established of success. And then the model has to be assassinated. They have to be built up, then we have to find fault with them and chop them down and and build up a new set. And this is called living. It's, It's... madness and within all of this setting up and chopping, chopping down which takes place there's all the advertisements which go along with it which have so much destructiveness in the advertisement the way that women are used terribly in, ad- in advertising and how there's the exploitation in advertising frequently of two things, sex and death. And if one, one looks at many of the advertisements which, which take place, there is that where millions of liter and dollar, pounds, marks are being spent day in and day out is in the abuse and the ma- manipulation of the mind and of our deeper intimations through advertising, and through sex, and through death. And sometimes, if you look at a picture of a woman advertising something, there's quite often, in that photograph, the fact, or a symbol, or an expression of male penis there, or the eyes, or something pointed towards the genital areas of the woman, or the breasts of the woman, If you look at all the advertising dealing with uh, uh, um, the advertising of death, such as um, cigarettes, such as uh, alcohol, such as widespread use of drugs, and so on and so forth, all of that is a communication to people which is harmful and destructive and something of death to it. And we, we experience this, this is sold to us day in and day out, and it has a subliminal, do you understand the word, you know, a subliminal influence on, our, on ourselves, on our, on our being. And I think we, one needs to be just aware, and as clear about this as possible. And so I'm not so sure sometimes when we, in terms of knowledge and information, whether it's freedom of the press which is the priority these days, maybe it's freedom from the press. Because as human beings, when we come on a retreat, what we're saying to ourselves in a way is, I am stepping away from all of that information. I am stepping away from the consumer world the advertising world, the money-making world, the, the world of the corruption of concerns of sex and death, and stepping into another world which feels more free and supportive and spacious, and which feels difficult but genuine in some way or other. And so we, in a way, we're making a switch. Making a move away from this movement and change, which is taking place and away from, still means we have a lot of knowledge, and this knowledge which we have about the world and the r- way of the world, what we might say, what is useful knowledge? What's skillful? What actually helps us understand and act and live intelligently? (coughs) And I think if we uh, are prepared to ask ourselves this kind of question, and to keep asking ourselves, what is skillful knowledge? What is worth knowing about? What knowledge allows us to act in a meaningful way, in a purposeful way? Now if you and I can bring that question, it's going to affect our relationship to information. It must affect it. Once we start asking what really is useful knowledge, it's going to affect what we read, what we watch on the television, what we listen to on the radio it may affect what cinemas we see, it may affect what we talk about it may affect what we study once we start asking ourselves questions it begins to affect much of our actions and activities in life if we don't ask ourselves if we don't say to ourselves, you know, what's useful knowledge what is skillful knowledge, if we don't ask ourselves what will happen to us is, we will simply be living in imitation of everything else. We will be doing what the society says, we'll be doing what the parents tell us, we'll be doing what the educators say, oh, you're very good in studying genetic engineering. Never mind experimenting on animals, morning, noon, and night. You're very good at that subject, do that. You're very good in this particular science. Two out of three scientists work for the military. Why don't you go into the military? You can earn a great deal of money working for the military as a scientist. No ethical consideration. No question, is this skillful knowledge? Is this useful knowledge? Is this knowledge contributing to health, or is it contributing to death? Is it contributing to life, or is it contributing to the negation of it? So when we begin to ask ourselves, what's useful knowledge, what's knowledge which is contributing to life, then it begins to influence what we say, what we do, what our values are, where we live, how we live, because we, we've asked ourselves this question. And then, and, and just, just talking, um, I remember uh, um, a year or two ago talking with Karada, uh Pensa, who uh, many of you uh, know and who we, uh, I certainly lo- love very dearly and uh, have uh, some very deep appreciation for the work which he is doing in Rome both within the context of the university and through the Dharma teachings, the insight meditation classes and all that he's worked so hard to establish uh, during the years. And one of the things which I um, had heard from friends there that when Karada is giving some uh, teachings in In the university and perhaps teaching something, say, from the Bhagavad Gita or from one of the Eastern texts, how many people just love to come, just to listen, just to hear what's being talked about, about life, about realities, about our relationship to life, and using some of these very old texts as a background for skilful and useful and helpful knowledge and in a way our centres of learning, our universities need to be that places where the knowledge has an ethical foundation which is useful knowledge and so hopefully in a situation of being here each day we are giving each other knowledge i giving terms of the Dharma talk in the evening, in the small group discussions or whatever. We're talking from our experience. And so one of the things which I was uh, um, talking with um, Joanna, um today in this interview, I think a very important area, and to some degree what's happening here reflects that that is, often when we talk about the state of the world or a situation we talk in theory, we talk in abstract we talk from the level of ideas, of thoughts and we talk around, in a very general way, we say, oh, this is going on in America this is going on in Russia, this is going on in Italy, and this is going on in Japan and very, all living in a world of ideas and thoughts, very brain very very cerebral and sometimes the information which comes up as it may do for you in the retreat you you remembered something about the state of the world and what's happening you know in the world you you, you know something like 40,000 children every day die from malnutrition in this world that It cost two million dollars, one million pound per day to store the food mountains in the European economic market countries. To store the food, it cost two million dollars a day. Every minute of every day, more than two million dollars is spent in the world on preparing for war. Every minute of every day, more than two million dollars. Every day, ten elephants in Africa have their heads cut off so that the trunks can be used, can be sold for huge profits in the Middle East. At the present rate, there won't be any elephants left in East Africa within five or ten years. Every day in Malaysia, the tropical rainforests, 3,000 trees from these tropical rainforests are chopped down. The wood is mostly sold to the West. If Malaysia continues at the present rate that it's doing, of 3,000 trees per day, within 10 years, Malaysia will have to be importing trees. Five years ago, Every day, one species on the earth was made extinct. Extinct. One species. Never, ever to come back. Never, ever to appear. Which had been on the earth for millions and millions and millions of years. One species every day, five years ago. Today, it is one species every hour becomes extinct. Seven years ago, they said that unless we changed our relationship in the industrial society to what we use, there would be a hole in the ozone layer which protects life from the ultraviolet rays, protects all life from ultraviolet rays, it's the filter. Since then, the rate of deterioration since 1979 of the ozone layer has increased by 7%. There is now, as many of you know, a hole in the ozone layer. That hole already is the size of the US. This knowledge, this information, is not just about your life and my my life, but it's about all life, and it's also about all future life. And sometimes in our meditations, and sometimes in the day that we experience, this information, in different ways, concern, human, real human concern, arises for us. (coughs) And just like one um, person, I was telling Joanna, just rang me the other day and she said, Christopher, I just saw a documentary on the television about these children who are dying and many other dreadful atrocities to children thousands and thousands of these children children in the world are actually nothing but slaves they're either slaves of the system or they're slaves in terms of they work for nothing in factories all over the world this is going on and this person rang and said and has this knowledge it it touched her in the course of a television documentary And sometimes we think, oh my god, isn't it a pity, oh dear, isn't it a shame and we can just talk about it and the knowledge doesn't necessarily make any difference and information technology gives us new knowledge and old knowledge every single day but one asks, what's the difference going to be from knowledge to awareness, to action. What's going to make this difference for us? What's going to go from knowledge away from the exploitation of sex and death, from knowledge to life? And so I I was talking to this person, I saw her in the street, then she telephoned me, we were talking on the phone, and I said to her, I kept asking her, how do you feel about it? How do you feel inside of yourself about this exploitation of children in the world? What's your feeling? And she would talk about her feelings and while talking about her feelings then she would say, Christopher, we have to do something. And I would say that that's an important shift which has taken place. It's gone from knowledge and awareness to how am I as a human being feeling about this situation, how can I express what I'm feeling? And in that expression of what we are feeling, we then go from feeling to awareness to action. We have to do something. And in that use of knowledge, in our experience of knowledge, I would say what's vital for this is human support. If, if we live in the world and we think in the world, the world is me and the world. If we think like that, that, isn't the world, that's only an idea. If we think me and the world, probably the world is going to seem terribly, terribly big. And me, poor little me, is going to feel terribly, terribly small. And we think begin to believe this is the truth, the world is a great big place and I'm just just poor little me, so what can I do? And how can you do anything? It's like saying, um, here's a mountain, how can I push it over? Because that's how the world appears. But through collective, through knowledge, and especially through experience and sharing together, then we find strength then we find ways to work with the situation. Now, in in rather the same way, I would say is going on in a retreat. We can arrive in a retreat and we can be in a retreat and we can say to ourselves this terribly big problem, I don't know what's going to move it, I I don't know what's going to change the problem. And sometimes things occur inside of oneself which we don't actually work on the problem. We don't actually talk about it, or we may talk about it, but sometimes problems just dissolve without any real working on them. And so sometimes you, you, you come into a retreat, you come into a retreat and we think, oh, I have this problem, I'm, while I'm on this retreat I'm really going to work very hard on this problem, I've really got to resolve it. So one comes in the retreat, sits and walks, and you think, come on problem, come up, where are you? And this problem doesn't appear, You come on, come on, I'm ready. And it just doesn't, it just doesn't happen. And then you're listening in the small group and somebody else is talking about their problems. (coughs) And then you begin to feel very jealous, oh, they've got problems. (laughs) I haven't got a problem, why can't I have a problem? Nothing much is going on inside of me. And so, you know, very easy, we're never satisfied. When we've got a problem we think, oh, if I didn't have this problem I'd be lovely. Then when we haven't got a problem, we think, oh, those lucky people, their problems always come up at the best time. And (laughs) never, never any peace of mind, with problems, without problems. And so, sometimes in the the situation, just through being in the present, just through being in contact with like-minded people, just through listening to the birds, just through sitting and walking and doing really what's very, very ordinary, just sitting, nothing special about it, just walking, very ordinary, lots of things going on inside just begin to dissolve. Things which seem to be major issues just collapse. And the wonderful thing about the nature is we don't have to work everything out wonderful, this is, this is so beautifully liberating, we don't have to go into childhood, we don't have to see if we had a birth trauma, we don't have to wonder, oh my god, if I've had one past life and that was a nightmare, my god, it could mean that I've had millions of past lives, oh no, it could be millions of nightmares, you know, and how am I going to work that lot out? Freud only talks about this life <laughs> he doesn't go on about all the other lives that I might have had So the extraordinary and beautiful and profound thing in the nature is that we don't have to work all these things out that there is energies available to us, around us and within ourselves which are very, very healing. And something which our information and our knowledge just, it just can't explain it. And so we begin to see that knowledge is valuable, is useful, is skillful to have right knowledge, right understanding. But some things just, the brain just doesn't comprehend, it just cannot do that. And in religious life this is frequently referred to as a miracle and I personally don't believe in miracles but I do believe in some things can't be explained. And I know just from retreats that there is something about silence which I don't understand with my thought and my knowledge and reflection and there's something about stillness and about togetherness, which means that something goes on with human beings and it's got nothing to do with education and it's nothing to do with information and nothing to do with knowledge or whatever, it's touching some other level inside of us. And this, something feels very true about it, very appropriate, very right, very intuitive, and we can't explain it. My sense with this and feeling is this: what well, we don't need to. We don't, we don't. need to. The fish doesn't have to. Doesn't have to keep explaining to other fish why it swims in the sea. It just swims in the sea. The birds don't keep explaining to each other up there. What, I mean, what this flying is all about. Um, have you, are there any scientific birds up here today? You don't have to ask. Birds fly, fish swim, and human beings spend time together, sitting and walking, and and in the receptivity that something, whatever, can occur. And so it's quite often that it that happens, that, and you may have experienced too. We come onto a situation like a, like a retreat and we're not sure, we have doubts, and we wonder what it's all about and lots of thoughts about what I'm doing here but the attitude of mind to the situation is an open one and one which the Buddha would frequently say, he'd use this lovely term, he'd say ehipāsiko, ehipāsiko and ehipāsiko, it means come and see for yourself That's all, just come and see for yourself, just come and experience. And in the general experience, of, there is this possibility for another sense of harmony with life, with the life around us. So when we, finally, when we're speaking here, we're saying in a way our brain and all the information which we accumulate has a place. But we ask ourselves, what's skillful knowledge? What's useful knowledge? What is the knowledge which contributes to awareness and action? What is the relationship of the knowledge which I have about anything in life to my actual experience, to what I feel deep inside? Or is it that the knowledge is one thing, And my feeling and my experience of life is something else. And there is a feeling of a gap between the knowledge and the feeling and experience. And if there is a gap, how can I bridge this gap? How can I make my feelings in life and my experiences of life and my knowledge of life really work together? So that I live, feel, experience and know and it feels in tune. What do I need to do to make that happen, to bring feelings and knowledge in harmony together? And when we begin to ask ourselves, then we contribute to the health of the human being. We contribute to the realization that instead of in Western philosophy, and which, and philosophy, if I may add here, the philosophers, we think these are just theoreticians, Philosophy has an enormous influence on culture, enormous influence on, on, on culture. And some of our Western philosophers, their influence has been very profound on our whole way of thinking, starting right back, you know, right back from the early Greek, Roman uh, philosophers, running right through to the shifts of philosophy, of separation of body from mind, and that split that took place. <coughs> and as one of the philosophers uh, you know, said, I, um, I think, therefore I am, and there was a cartoon recently um, in an American newspaper uh, quoting this, uh, is it Descartes, is it? Is it Des- yeah, Descartes' famous dictum, I think, therefore I am, and then a little bird got a little question and it it said, I am what? (laughs) I think therefore I am what? And in this way of emphasis, it's like we've got to step out to some degree of the kind of influences, not to take up other influences, but towards a holistic awareness in which the body and the heart and the feelings and the awareness and the knowledge really are in harmony with each other. And if you and I can explore that and live holistically, live wholly, live totally, that perception will see it around us. If we're feeling whole here, we'll see wholeness. And if we see wholeness, we'll see the world in a different way. And that wouldn't be an idea, that wouldn't be a thought, that would be our sense, very deep sense. So just as once it may have been true, the view of there is me and the world and that's the truth, there is this is me and all that is not me, not me, not me, not me, just as once that may have been what we think, that's the truth, that's the way things are, that very view can dissolve into, and in which there is a way of seeing which has no division in it. Then the separation has gone, the fiction, the, the dream has finished. The dream of division and separateness and, and duality. And so then we begin to see that how much, and as contemporary in philosophy, and perhaps the major influence here at the present time in philosophy in the west is Wittgenstein who who if i may say is impossible to read you know d- don't try to read wittgenstein it's 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 ho- it's hopeless but one can read what the commentators the students of wittgenstein wrote about wittgenstein that's easy that's uh, easier but the very simple communication, I think, of Wittgenstein in a n- nutshell is be aware of language. Just remember that. And if you n- just remember that you don't have to read Wittgenstein, it saves you a lot of a lot of extra <laughs> knowledge. <laughs> so in our way that we use the language, how easily it sets up divisions between people. Fragmentation separateness and all the complexity that begin to evolve so if we can see just language is as language just as words just as thought formations just as appearances we can be allow ourselves to see in that way we won't believe so much in distinction in the separation we won't think oh russia ends here and Germany starts here and Switzerland starts here and Italy starts there because I I don't know if you've ever found any difference on the land between uh, these countries, I've been to, very lucky, been to more than 40 countries and I still haven't found the place which shows this is one country and this is another. They're just lines in the mind, only lines in the mind. And language reinforces the lines. And if we just see language is doing this, it doesn't really. Then all this knowledge about them and them, what does it mean? It's empty. So awareness of the brain, awareness of knowledge, awareness of information, needs to be related to the experience and feelings. If we start bringing those together, we can discover a great deal about our relationships with life. And ways and means in which the divided relationship is seen to be what it is, empty of truth, empty of true reality, just conventional language, just ways of talking. And sometimes the ways of talking have had terribly violent consequences. So, seeing through the divisions, sees through the violence, and seeing through the violence, seeing all that wrapped up together, language and violence, opens the heart to a loving awareness in life, and a caring and a compassionate one, and an awareness in, in life which doesn't accept divisions. And then we know and begin to sense that knowledge and experience and action are working together. And in that we pay respect. We pay respect to all human beings. We pay respect to the the nature and the tropical rainforests and the creatures. We pay respect to the earth and the sky and the water and the oceans. So let's be aware in our meditations of when thought comes, when there's fragmentation, and when it's contributing to fragmentation through the repetition of the thought. Let's be aware too when thought arises and um, that thought is expressing a connectedness, a holistic sense of uh, a being with, uh, a caring sense. So let us in our meditations really watch thought and What impact it has on the way we look at life. May all beings be in touch with life. May all beings appreciate skillful knowledge. May all beings apply skillful knowledge. So let's have a minute or two quiet period together, shall we?